I invite you to turn in the Word of God to one of the Gospels, to Matthew chapter 13, as we are continuing to look at the parables of Jesus. And even as we've just sung about the worth of the Lord's law, tonight we look at a parable that describes the worth, the value of the kingdom. Our text begins at verse 44 of Matthew chapter 13. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. These are the words of Christ. Let's ask for his blessing upon him. Father in heaven, we thank you for the miracle that you work among your people every time that we sit under the word. We ask that you this evening would guide us into truth, stir us up afresh to rightly esteem what is held out to us, what we have in a sense stumbled upon in this world. And yet you put it in our path to hear the gospel and to hear the proclamation of Good things promised in Christ through faith. We ask this evening that you would please help us to lay hold of them. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In some respects, this is one of, or rather these are, some of the most straightforward of the parables. We've already seen certain parables that are a little bit harder to decipher. By contrast, This is much more on the nose about what Jesus was getting at, what the purpose is. And yet that in no way diminishes the value of meditating upon it. Some of the parables provide incredible insights. Others of them, by their very illustrations, are meant to evoke a strong response. And certainly this parable is meant to bring about a response in each one of us tonight. Now, what is the purpose here? It's very simple again. Here, Christ is illustrating to us something of the value of the kingdom. Implicit in it as well is a sense of the low value which many people place upon it, but that doesn't change its value at all. And in turn, we learn something about the way that we, if we are to lay hold of the kingdom, the way that we are to pursue it. You have an illustration here that is for imitation. It shows you something of the kind of life the Lord is calling you to in response to the kingdom. So it's pretty simple, and as we look at this, we're going to do so under two main headings. First, basically, we're going to look at the pricelessness of the kingdom. We're going to look at the pearl, at the treasure, and the pricelessness of the kingdom. And maybe that is something you need to be reminded of tonight, because... For one reason or another, it does not feel so valuable to you, this Christian life, this faith. And then secondly, we're going to look at the pursuit demonstrated by each of these people. There are some similarities between them, and then there are also some significant differences, and we need to bear in mind each of those things in order to know where you are at in this imagery here. There's no parable that is not given by the Lord Jesus Christ without the expectation that we would take from it and live in light of it. None of this is simply data. 
The Lord expects a kind of life to flow out of it. So these are the things that we consider together this evening. Before we come to the main points, though, I want to clarify one thing here. What does the pearl symbolize? What does the treasure that is buried in the field symbolize? I think it's very natural to populate that with one aspect of Christ's kingdom that especially is important to you, where you see the value very clearly, and so you think of the pearl as that. For instance, it's very common for people to think of the pearl as forgiveness of sins. But this is only one aspect of what Jesus is talking about here, and whatever he's talking about, its full possession is not pictured as occurring immediately. From God's vantage, we should have no doubt that the person who comes to faith is instantly justified in the sight of God, received, cannot be lost. There's a great chain of salvation described in Romans 8 that cannot be broken. But as this is being laid out by Jesus here, he's talking about something that only comes into full possession in the next age. What then is a pearl signifying? What then is a treasure signifying? Very basically, He tells us it's the kingdom of heaven representing the whole package, all the benefits, all the blessings that are covenanted in Jesus Christ to those who persevere in faith. And so on the one hand, there is the glimmer of the pearl that we enjoy already now in something like the assurance of our salvation, of our justification. But no one of us has come into the full possession of, for instance, what it will be like to experience glory. And so this is a picture of things that ultimately are the whole sum, the whole package of what is given in Jesus Christ. Now, what Christ is doing then in the first place, in our first main heading, is laying before you, again, the pricelessness of the kingdom. He could have simply told you it is priceless. But he gives us a picture here, and that's meant to stir our emotions in some ways to tell us something about the value, how it is worth more than all in the world. Twice in the parable, we see the different people sell everything they have for it. You think of Jesus' words elsewhere. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? But the inverse of that is also true. The opposite of that is true. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? The opposite is true. What a man or woman gains through faith in Jesus Christ is better than had he gained the whole world. Which one of us regularly feels gripped by the emotion of that? And yet, if someone anonymously mailed us a big check midweek, would we not feel greatly delighted, myself included, The emotional impact of a small windfall right now often exceeds the felt reality of the age to come. And yet, Jesus says, this is the kingdom. And he compares it to a treasure buried in a field. The nature of a treasure buried in a field is that its value is lost on most people. Its inherent worth doesn't change by putting it in the ground. This is a time before paper money. This would have been, in all likelihood, metal, jewels, things that will not degrade, which sit there just being valuable whether or not anyone recognizes it. 
And yet the value is there. And in this case, it's a treasure. The man immediately sells everything else. He says, this is of far greater value to me. Who is the one telling you about this in the parable? It's not me. It's not this church, though we bear witness to our conviction. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we as Christians affirm is God, who took on our human nature and spoke through human lips to tell you about something he knows perfectly well. He has been there. He's seen the kingdom. It's of his creation. And he looks each one of us in the face and says, this is of incredible value. It's like a pearl of great price, better than everything else. Again, that people would sell everything for it. Why does Jesus present this to us on one level? It's because he knows our tendencies. He didn't need anyone to say anything about the human heart. He knew it perfectly well. He knows your heart. He knows what you value. He knows what I value. And how so often we listen to the lie of the enemy who tells us this Christian race is not worth it. Think of all the things you're missing out. And if this turns out to be fake, this was your one shot. This was your one shot. And think of all that you have not done. Sure, other people would call it bad and they'd heap some scorn on you maybe, but that's just their self-righteousness. That's just their judgment. But you have to look out for yourself. You have to enjoy these fleeting things because you're going to pass out of this world and you'll never have another shot. Is that not what we have felt at times? And Jesus says, no, this is the greatest of all the pearls. If you look at it, if you really think about what it is, it shines with a luster incomparable. What is promised in salvation? What is promised in the kingdom? First of all, the king. There is no kingdom without the king. And who is this king of glory? This is the one who has the power, the only one who has the power in all of creation and beyond to deliver you from the sins that cleave to you, which if he did not deliver you for all of your immortal being into the future would cleave like some gigantic roach in the darkness to your heart. Christ is a king who wields a sword in his word and spirit who can sever that, who can free you forever into what you were made to be. A truly liberated spiritual being, one who loves without restraint, one who sees the right path and wants to take it. Christ, our king, is worth all. And then his kingdom is all things brought into right order underneath him and the enjoyment thereof. Isn't that good? Who can offer you that? Maybe some employer can offer you slightly better benefits for a little while if you'll accept a few ethical diversions. He or she cannot offer you everlasting life in an age that does not rust. Christ can. The best of all possible news has come into this world. If you can imagine a gospel better than what you have heard to be the Christian gospel, you have not yet heard the Christian gospel. It is the goodest of good news. This is the treasure. And yet, the enemy is so incredibly persuasive. He's a a snake-tongued salesman, and he will tell you that the things of this week are so important. And those sins are going to bring satisfaction. They won't. 
And so many people forsake the pearl. What's implied in this story is that when this man finds the pearl, the owner is willing to sell. Says he sold all that he had to obtain it. That means he didn't take it from a clam. Someone was willing to sell. And we are so tempted, are we not, at times, to sell out the things of the faith, to say, let somebody else have them. Let somebody else have them. Because it's just not worth it. They can go do that, and I'm going to go do this, and it's going to be a better life. God, who wore our flesh, who has seen both sides, says to you, it is worth it. It is priceless. Now, there is one important detail here, easy to overlook. I've already mentioned it. Neither of the persons who find these priceless objects immediately obtains it. And that's to signify it's not simply talking about, say, the experience of justification, of being declared righteous in the sight of God. We believe, according to the testimony of Scripture, that all those who have been justified in Christ are preserved by the Holy Spirit. He who began a good work in you shall complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. But, from the human vantage, it is also true, only those who persevere in faith are saved. And that means it's indicative that if a person does not persevere, there's no reasonable basis to believe that they were of faith. Of course, if that happens, we pray that they return. Sometimes people wander out. Christ leaves the 99. He goes after the one sheep. He brings them back. That's our prayer. But why does Jesus in this parable lay emphasis on this period that intervenes? This is to draw attention to the fact that those who would gain possession of the things that are described in the gospel... There are certain actions required of them that come about through faith and obedience of faith, which is the natural result of the indwelling spirit, and apart from which no one can have the expectation of life. And so the Lord is calling us to look at the pursuit that characterizes those who gain the kingdom. And this is our second, our final main point here. As you consider the pursuit of these people, first observe this. In some ways, these people are very different from one another. Jesus doesn't describe every conceivable kind of person who obtains a kingdom, but these two are very significant. The first person stumbles on the treasure. There's no indication this person was looking for it. There's something very wonderful about that. Did God know the treasure was there? Yes. Providentially, he has placed it in their path. But this person wasn't looking for it, and yet they stumble onto it. By the way, this would not have seemed so far-fetched as maybe it seems to you. Back in that day, there are not central banks. It was not uncommon for families to bury their possessions in a field and to take some note somewhere where that is. If they have to leave for a time, leave their house unattended, or if they're fleeing in a time of war, they bury things. Governments would do this as well. If they're under attack, they'd get out the records and make a careful record. This is where the stuff is. And they'd take off. There's a document called the Copper Scroll, which archaeologists uncovered not many years ago. It's very ancient. It predates the New Testament. And it lists out over 70 locations, by the way, of buried treasure, alleged buried treasure. And several of these have believed to have been found in recent years. 
And so when Jesus is describing this, it's not nearly so far-fetched. There is a sense, however, it doesn't make a difference, because in this case, it's not about physical treasure. It's about landing on the kingdom, coming into paths with the promise of the gospel and the way of faith. And there are those people who are not seeking it, and yet God has put it in their path. They stumble upon it. This may be somebody who was raised in the church. They didn't go out looking for the word of life. God has put it in their path. For them, it's just there in the field. And what are they going to do with it? Will they even recognize the value? Or will they say, this is just some, some stuff, it's fake, they walk by? Alternatively, it's maybe a person who has no real interest in the things of God, but they get invited to church or invited among family here. I know that several of you, several of you at different times have talked to me about how you invited someone that you just met in the course of daily life over to your home, and you end up getting to share the gospel with them. Again, they weren't looking for it, but there it is. The treasure is right there. And there are those who have that story then. And it raises questions about what will the response be. Then you have the second person in verse 45. Look how this person is described. A merchant in search of fine pearls. This person's identity, their vocation, is tied up in the pursuit of that which is truly valuable. And they are on the hunt for it. They are in search of fine pearls. As far as they're concerned, there are many of them. They're looking for them. And then they come upon this one pearl and they say, this is better than everything I've ever seen combined such that I'm willing to sell it all. And even so, there are those people too, people who, by the grace of God, have been seeking. And I realize on one hand, as a church standing in the Reformed tradition, we want to be sure to say that no one seeketh God, Romans chapter 1. By nature, that's true. And yet, in the beauty of the Lord's work, there are those whom he is drawing to himself through a whole course of seeking. You think of Cornelius, I mentioned this morning. You think of Lydia, of whom it says in Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart to receive these things. You have people in Acts chapter 17 who say to Paul, after others hear his message and say, oh, this is all crazy, they say, we will hear more about this resurrection. And these are people standing on Mars Hill who are interested, engaged on all of these questions of philosophy and religion. And so there are those who are seeking truth, and then they find it in the gospel. There's a wonderful account of this in very early church history, the story of Justin Martyr. I wonder how many of you children are familiar with Justin. He's one of those with whom we should be familiar. Justin's story has been retold many, many times. He lives in the second century, so about 80 years after the last of the apostles have died. He's very early. And he tells in his writings about how he was very interested in philosophy. He believed there was something true in the world. He wanted wisdom. And so he went and studied under the Stoics. Then he went and studied under the Platonists and all these different schools. And some of them, he said, this can't be true for that reason. This can't be true for this reason. And then one day feeling that it's probably hopeless that anyone can know the truth, he's down by the sea, and he meets an old man. 
I quote from Herman Honko, a Reformed pastor who wrote a wonderful summary of Christian history. It says, By the seaside, Justin argued vehemently with the old man, who was a Christian, in the defense of his pet philosophy, and received very little argument from the old man in return. But finally, the old man curtly cut him off and said, You're a mere dealer in words, Justin, but no lover of action and truth. Your aim is not to be a practicer of good, but a clever disputant, a cunning sophist. You're just interested in talking. Let's be honest, Justin. You're doing all this seeking, but there's no transformation in your life. Where is the real ethical transformation if you believe there's good? And Justin responded, where then is the truth? And the old man replied, search the scriptures. Pray that the gates of light may be opened to you. For none can perceive and comprehend these things except God and his Christ grant them understanding. And Justin then, we would say, moved by the Holy Spirit, began to study the scriptures and shortly thereafter came to faith. People have different routes in God's providence of arriving at the knowledge of the gospel. And we should be sensitive to that. That not everyone has our story and they might need a lot of correcting and leading, and maybe some hard words like that old man gave, challenging people where they were really at. But essentially, their response is the same. And that's the last idea you need to recognize. People arrive at the knowledge of the gospel differently, but the response, if it is to be sincere, is essentially the same. Twice we read, they sell everything they have to gain it. Now, salvation cannot be earned or bought. We must have in our mind texts like in Isaiah where it says, come buy without money. Take and drink without price. The gospel is free. And yet here, Jesus is simply illustrating the fact this is a characteristic of genuine faith. When push comes to shove, that we will let nothing stand between us and persevering in God's way. However many times we fall, we get up, we repent, we come back. We do not forsake his way. We do not forsake his people. This is characteristic of it. It's captured very memorably in the words of Martin Luther's song that I know that many of us are familiar with. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And so it challenges us in whether or not we feel that if called upon to do so, we'll forsake anything to follow him. Some here have had to experience a severing of relationships with family because of your profession, your fidelity to the word of the gospel. Because when somebody asks you to affirm their choices, you could only affirm that you love them. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. No one in themselves is worthy of Christ. His point is very simple. The characteristics of those who inherit the kingdom is a spirit-wrought willingness to suffer for Christ. That suffering is usually 
at least in our time, not going to look like some glorious martyrdom. It's not. It's going to look like simply being shunned in the workplace. Peter says, they will think that you are strange when you don't run with them to all kinds of drunken debauchery. They will think that you're strange when you don't laugh at the same jokes, when you seem to have a change in your countenance, when they take Christ's name in vain. They'll think you're strange that you give up one-seventh of your life for this. They don't see the treasure. You know it's buried. It's hidden with you. They don't understand the value of the pearl. To them, it's just some trinket. They have no concept. It's like those people that we've heard of in South America, that when explorers from Europe first went over there, they found people willing to give away all their gold in exchange for things that the Europeans understood cost nothing to make. There wasn't the right understanding of the value, all things considered. And so we're called to be willing to give up for Christ. And yet, verse 44 Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He has to sell off prejudices in order to be a part of the church. He has to sell off sins. He has to sell off his pride. And yet he does so in joy. And I put that to you then, Christian. When you are brought to these things, is there a sense of, I still have the better deal? I have the bargain. It is worth it, even if it's not comfortable, even if for a time we go without. And so we've heard something this evening of the value of the kingdom. I lay it to you as a question. I want to especially ask the younger ones here. Weigh it in your heart. Do you perceive Christ's kingdom, which is promised in the gospel, to be priceless, better than everything this world can give you? Christ has seen it, and he cannot lie. He says, hold fast to it. Sell everything for it. Put the pearl in your pocket. Tap it often. Be reminded, this is of superlative value. This is the greatest. Second, we've seen what it takes to gain it. And here I simply advise you to pray. Pray humbly. Pray earnestly. Pray, God, it is in me as it has been in others to turn away. Unless you keep me in your path. There's only one person I'm scared for. The person who says, I would, I would never turn away. I clearly, I get the value of it. I wouldn't. I fear for you if that's you. Rather, you say, there go I, but for the grace of God. This week, Lord, keep me in your way. And finally, I want to lay before you what's apparent in this passage. Take to heart how this will appear to those around you. It will look like you've got the bad deal. They will pity you, as one of the hymns that we sang said. They may scorn you. You can't let that get you down too much. The ridicule that was just part and parcel. They thought that Christ was doing something very foolish when he went to the cross. Pilate went out of his... You get the feeling Pilate so badly wanted to deliver Jesus. It's exactly the reverse. Christ is the only one who could deliver Pilate. And it says in the word that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus went to the cross despising the shame. There's a joy that's worth a crucifix. And the Lord calls us to set our eyes on that. We'll close with this one passage, 2 Corinthians 4. Hear these words and then we'll pray. 
we do not lose heart. For though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They fade away, but the things that are unseen are everlasting. And then verse 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we desire to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In a sense, we might say, we've never yet lived. There is life, there is a pearl, there is treasure. May God help us to lay hold of it. Let's pray even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that this evening, no doubt, some of us have felt strongly that we need to be reminded to hold fast to your course. The delights of this earth are real and the pleasures of this age are real. And we confess before you, Lord, that we have been attracted, we have swerved at times back to that which is not good for us. We ask that you would please deliver us from any mindset that does not affirm the pricelessness of all that is held out in Christ. We thank you for the willingness that you show to give us not only this declaration, this offer, but that you by your spirit bring to pass all the things that we ask. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.